Hey there, Brenda. It's Carol. Exactly. So which leg are we operating on? You mean arm. It's all connected. Asking the right question can greatly impact your future. Are you sure you're an orthopedist? Actually, I'm a Sagittarius. Especially when it comes to your finances. Do you have a question? Are you a certified financial planner? Yes, I'm a CFP professional. CFP professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. And we're back with an all-new episode of Keep It. I'm Ira Madison III. I'm Louis Vertel in a turtleneck today, which you can't hear, but you will intuit throughout the broadcast. And also intuit that I, Aida Osman, am also wearing a turtleneck. Ira, what's good? Where's yours? Yeah, we have a lot of sinister energy going on here, mm-hmm. and Ira's wearing just a t-shirt. It really feels underdone. I don't participate in iPhone PowerPoint culture. Oh, I so, see. <laughs> yeah. Girl, elaborate. Not really. Elaborate. Turtlenecks, like Steve Jobs. Oh, here we go. Okay, I'm with it now. That's a nice. See? Thanks. Below the belt. Thank you. You're already making me want to jump into my keep it, which is Aaron Sorkin related, but I'll, I'll let the viewers <laughs> guess what that's about. <laughs> I could have guessed that would have been your keep it, Lewis. It's very on brand for you. <laughs> mm-hmm. you having interests and concerns? Yes. <laughs> yes, with, with, with something that we know very little about. <laughs> oh, that's right, yeah. <laughs> he teaches. He teach and he protects. <laughs> Constantly, um, Clytemnestra over here. Mm. But does she kill her kids? No, that was Medea. Right. Who did Clytemnestra kill? Like uh, her husband? Agamemnon. Agamemnon, what? that's right. What yes. play mm-hmm. are we yes. talking about? We're talking about Agamemnon. <laughs> that's right. Mm-hmm. Okay, you did, yeah, you did answer before. <laughs> From the house of Atreus. Although I think I meant to say... Desdemona? No, that's Shakespeare. Right. Where's nope. my brain this morning? Clytemnestra was evil. She was like a sorceress. Yes, but I, I meant, I meant like, who was the seer? Oh, mm, that's a good question. Cassandra. Um, Cassandra. That's it. Yes. Look, here I Cassandra. am. Cassandra. Girl, I thought when you said Medea, you was talking about those plays. I'm not out of this conversation. <laughs> We're not talking about Tyler Perry this early in the morning. Okay, guys, I will read Agamemnon and report back with this nonsensical information. I took one acting class in college, and we had to read at least a little bit of that or something. But um, I had a very frightening acting teacher who was in her late 60s, and her name was, of course, Meredith. <laughs> and uh, she, in the past, had played Clytemnestra, and... When people have that power, they scare you. It is a scary thing to be able to play someone like that. Mm. We'll get actually in terms of scary performances, we might we'll tap into that with our interview today. But so remember last week when Lewis said it was a slow news week. Um, now Army Hammer's drinking blood. What's up with that? Oh my God! What a Girl. great question. Well, I'll tell you this. So the story is that he's allegedly DM some people, and there's some fetish verbiage about drinking people's blood. Can I just say something? Rich people are bored. Yes. (laughs) And I think many fetishes in this this realm that are kind of like, 
I'm saying something utterly twisted, really comes from being fucking bored <laughs> and having a bit too much money. You're like a 6'4", attractive white man who with a wonderful jawline, and you've played yourself twice in a movie. Like, the amount of ego and narcissism that it entails, I feel like at a certain point, just like, yeah, I have to eat human flesh <laughs> to get hard. <laughs> like, I, I, <laughs> I thought that rich white people drank blood anyway. Elizabeth Bathory, Don't. you know, I, I thought that that was just Don't. the thing. Oh, I, you thought uh, that was a documentary, and, yeah. Well, you know, also, like, doesn't he own an island? Well, uh-huh. they own a whole bunch of stuff, like the Hammers. Are, yeah, yeah. I just, I'm just like, they, they could have all sorts of people, poor people, on that island that they hunt for sport and drink their blood. I just assume that's what the Hammers do. In fact, that's why he's <laughs> called that Army's are his favorite food. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Yuck. <laughs> uh, but basically, this is a story that is far too confusing to even get into, mostly because every time there are leaks of Army Hammer on some sort of social media site or dating app, talking to a woman about his fetishes, and then we see his likes on Twitter that are just sort of like ropes and whips and S&M stuff. Um, We've established that he's into that. Yeah. Uh, But I'm always confused whenever one of these sort of messages leaks because for me, the question is, um, what kind of person are you who knows that your divorce is sort of high profile and Every time you have a conversation with a woman, like she is going to probably screenshot it and share it. Mm -hmm. So why do you keep doing it is my question. You know, like find some other means to attract women. Girl, get a, make a fake account. Point. Get a WhatsApp. Like, do, why are you constantly self-sabotaging? And also, the, I think that... With your name there. Yeah, what really scared <laughs> me about this whole story was that the way that the person was speaking, because I mean, now some the person who's released a lot of these messages has doubled back and been like, it was fake. Like, I promise you it was fake. Even the audio that I have is fake. But... All of the all of the messages are are written in the same voice, are written in the same like overly perverted, and I'm going to be extra detailed about it because I'm getting off on this. It's all suspect, and I and I unfortunately believe it's real. <laughs> I really do. Mm-hmm. And whether it's real or not, you know, there's also that question of, you know, if you're into bondage, S and M, mm-hmm. etc. Um, you know, choking people. There's consent in that, you know, and. You know, you should address it with a partner in a safe way. You know, probably mm-hmm. don't just sidle on up to people and say, hey, can I choke you? Yeah. Can I drink your blood? You know, that that is sort of the same sensation I get when someone sends me a whole pick on Grinder for the first <laughs> message. Good morning. I didn't ask for that. I'm sitting here watching cartoons. <laughs> is that what you're watching? All right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I actually got really stoned this weekend and watched Laser Wolf on Adult Swim. How is that? I've been meaning to get around to that show. I actually quite enjoy it. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, Nikki, writes on it, and um, Quinta's also a voice on it. Yeah, um, isn't Vince, Vince Staples is a voice on it, too? It's, like, yeah. it's a show that's literally made for me. It's made for Aida, and I've yet to watch it. I don't really watch cartoons that much. I was trying to get in the headspace of people who get stoned just to watch cartoons. It's kind of fun. Girl, you guys are, you guys are going to stop calling animated, distinguished television cartoons, okay? This is not Looney Tunes. Okay. This is no. <laughs> there's, there's narrative. There's plot. And I know you saw it. I, 
I apologize. Thank you. Uh, American anime. Thank you. Thank you. I will say these details about Army Hammer would have been critical in making his character in Rebecca fantastic. Unfortunately, <laughs> they gave him no, no coloring of the sort. So I'm now led to believe Rebecca was even more of a missed opportunity because that character should be perverse. Yeah. Uh, I guess to wrap this up, um, when you hear a story about this where there potentially may be a celebrity who is um, abusive um, or at least coercive in some of their language, um, we talked about this a bit the other week with Shia LaBeouf, right? Yeah. Um, it took so long for us to depart from Shia LaBeouf because um, we were enraptured by his acting and sort of all the weirdness surrounding him. Fortunately, there's nothing in Army Hammer's acting um, catalog <laughs> to enrapture us. Uh, <laughs> and, and if it turned out that we had to stop thinking about Army Hammer tomorrow... I could do that. I do think it's possible. Well, yeah, but you're going to have to get through. Because he is doing a sequel of Silence of the Lambs called Silence of the Kittens. So just <laughs> for that. But oh, beyond God. that. Beyond that. Aida's on the fucking <laughs> match game this week. <laughs> After he receives his All right. for that. <laughs> Army Hammable Lecter. Uh, okay, we can end the intro. You did it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, we've got a lot of news to get to this week. There was a coup at the fucking Capitol, and Trump's off Twitter. We'll discuss all that and more. Plus, our guest this week is the fantastic Riz Ahmed, and we're going to talk about his amazing new movie, Sound of Metal. We'll be right back. Hey. There's new Keep It merch in the Crooked store. Check out the We Can't Cancel You If You Were Never Scheduled sweatshirt, which is also the image from the first month on our calendar. So you should definitely get that. There's also a Je Suis Catherine Deneuve mug, which is perfect for sipping and spilling the tea. I didn't write that copy. Anyway, shop now at crooked.com slash store. I feel like it was truly days ago that we were talking about a bad Vogue cover. Every time there is a Vogue cover in the United States, we have a conversation about it. And speaking of uh, having that conversation, sure. this week we're talking about Kamala Harris on the cover of Vogue, which... I'm very happy for you know. I'm excited for her to um, have a Vogue cover. Girl, that was not a Vogue cover. That was a behind-the-scenes shot of an Old Navy commercial. That was not no Vogue cover. No. I wish that it were any other country but U.S. Mm -mm. Vogue mm -mm. because their covers are awful and usually unimaginative. Uh, maybe the last one I enjoyed was, well, Harry Styles. He, yeah. Uh, that was a good one. The Beyonce, there was a Beyonce cover that was amazing. Yes, uh, which is even wilder because Tyler Mitchell, who shot Kamala Harris for this cover of Vogue, uh, shot both of those covers. So we know that the range is there. And I, we know it. And I don't even blame, yeah. I don't blame, of course I don't blame Tyler Mitchell for the horrible photo that was chosen for Kamala Harris's Vogue shoot, but. Mm -hmm. 
Girl, a lot of slacking happened. No, just to be clear. So wait, when you're talking about the, the, the horrible choices, you mean the first one that was like pink and green, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. The one that, yeah, was like the colorway was Trader Joe's mochi. Like it was yeah. not. Yeah. Something was wrong. <laughs> well, it was the AKA colors. Yeah, yeah. Okay. The, I do appreciate the colors. The pink and green, which um, when I was talking about how I did not like this cover, um, I want to give a shout out to the very helpful um, white gay man who DM'd me uh, and told me that those were the AKA colors because mm-hmm. I would have had no idea otherwise. Yeah, because there's, there's really no... <laughs> no way of knowing, uh, even though I was raised with AKAs being the enemy because my mom was a Delta. Oh, so you oh, have history. Yeah. You have his- But I was going to say, it's, yeah. it's really only a nod if I can see you nodding. You feel me? Like <laughs> Yes. Well, sh- she wasn't nodding. She was more holding her hands. Uh, <laughs> To me, there was something particularly odd about how far away she was, like how much of her, like we could just look at her shoes. Yeah, it was not right. Mm. But um, green and pink, I knew that. I knew it was an AKA coloring thing, but it also just reminds me of the movie Young Adult, which fills me with a sort of, Mm. uh, because she wears the green sweats and the pink sweatpants. And uh, it just fills me with dread because that character is on the brink. (laughs) (laughs) This cover that we're talking about sort of leaked online mm-hmm. earlier this week it was um just appeared on like on the on twitter and um everyone was sort of wondering is this a fake cover uh because it looks so god awful it was a scary picture it's a scary picture she's wearing the converse which i guess <laughs> is part of her brand now That's a brand and new, tims yeah. <laughs> converse and timbaland are um Battling for the soul of our nation. What's next? She gonna do <laughs> is a what's Fubu happening. and Peli Peli next? Just wait. <laughs> <laughs> the endorsements that she is going to walk out of the White House with, I am so jealous. I'm excited for her. But she is standing like almost in this field. There is a like a pink curtain hanging behind her, and it just looks like you are in a studio at Kmart. Or it is like your roommate just started taking headshots and he wants to do some test photos on you. Yes. She's also completely washed out. Mm-hmm. She's a light-skinned woman, but they made her look like Lewis. <laughs> One of the lightest-skinned women I know. Yeah. <laughs> it looks like the photo that they took to make sure the memory card was in. Like, I don't think that it was one that was intended to be printed. It was an outtake that they put as a front photo. The one they ended up choosing... Do we like that one better? Because I will say the color of the suit she's wearing, gorgeous, that kind of powder blue or whatever. Mm -hmm. The thing she's standing in front of looks a little bit like a massage table to me. And the coloring of the curtains behind her to me read Carson Tonight Show or Muppet Show. So it's not like we got a triumphant (laughs) solution, I thought. Yeah, I like the second photo that uh, Tyler Mitchell shared on his Instagram. That one was um, fantastic. A shot of her in front of a gold curtain. That one actually mm-hmm. looks pretty glamorous. The one before, I love the suit and I love the coloring. But yes, the, the massage table behind her, I don't know what's happening. <laughs> I even, even in that photo, which is supposed to be the better one, the one that Tyler posted in the thread, the second one, it's lit differently and it flatters her mm-hmm. in a much more like domineering and a respectful way. The other photo kind of just ages mm-hmm. her. The one they use for the cover makes her look much older. It's not very sophisticated, mm-hmm. I feel like. And this is just like one of the many failures, I think, from the Vogue team to pick 
the right photo for black women. Yeah, this 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 looks like she is in Star Wars. I don't know. Like, <laughs> like the colors are a little Naboo, um, <laughs> but um, Tyler shared this cover on Instagram, not the other one. Oh, yeah. interesting. So Anna Wintour, what's good? Exactly. What is the thing that just keeps U.S. Vogue covers from looking so? uneventful i know that they're celebrity driven but when you look at one like there's no imagination to them and they're very much covers that i guess if you're in the aisle at um walgreens or um gelson's or piggly wiggly you will recognize a celebrity and grab it right but gone are what you would sort of like imagine why people get into the fashion industry like a dazzling cover. Yeah. You know, there's nothing fashionable about this cover. I think about a Rihanna Vogue cover that she did for UK that is just so stunning. It looks like album artwork. It's beautiful. And I wonder if a lot of the US covers have kind of diminished in their decadence or whatever because Americans prefer approachability and they don't necessarily enjoy the high glamour, but... Anna Wintour in U.S. Vogue is out of chances with me. Like these covers from <laughs> Simone Biles and that horrible Annie Leibovitz, mm. you know, spread that we saw. We talked about really recently where she just looks yeah. ashier than all get out. And I know that. I know Simone keeps it moisturized. So I know <laughs> and that's not the case. And Michelle Obama Vogue shoots that have happened during Obama's presidency. They were all poorly lit as well. Like there's just, this is failure. It's yeah. failure. She had three covers that, you know, like, in retrospect, when you watch them, they're sort of pitiful. Mm -hmm. Was she just laying on a couch on one of them or, like, sitting on the edge of, like, a couch? It's, there's, there's no vision to them, really. They, they look like press uh, photos for a ABC primetime drama, <laughs> you know? <She's> like <laughs> Madam Secretary understudy. Not even that. They look like <laughs> One Life to Live cast photos, okay? <laughs> I do think you put your finger on something, Aida, which is, the problem is celebrities need to be less approachable again. I miss yes, when they yes. were just untouchable. We didn't know shit about them on Twitter. They kind of seem mean. Like, again, I'm going to bring up Madonna again. The diva era. Bring it back. You think Madonna cared about her fans in the 80s? Absolutely not. And you did not approach her, and she was frightening. And that's the way we liked it. I prefer it. Yeah. I just, I just can't imagine anyone wanting to get into the magazine industry or work at Vogue from seeing any of these covers. You know? Mm -hmm. Like, there's there's no magic Girl, there. I look better in this Zoom call right now. The lighting <laughs> in my room is better. I, I think, and this the important thing about this story is because it feels so insignificant. Like, at, really, when I first saw it, I was like, who cares? Kamala doesn't care, whatever. But Vogue, like, undercut Kamala's team and used a photo that she didn't approve on. And also... A lot of people are going to see this, and we know that American politics is about pop culture and about your image. And if you are continuing to undercut one of the first big images of Kamala Harris, like that's that's problematic, and that makes it difficult for her to like establish likability. I mean, I've seen her dance, so a lot of likability is gone already. But <laughs> I'm happy that Kamala is here, and I just want I just want her to have a fresh slate. And this didn't do much justice. She really does dance like she is jumping for mushrooms in Super <laughs> Mario World, doesn't she? <laughs> she really does be booping around. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. But now, speaking of Vogue contributors, I don't know if you guys caught um, the new Martin Scorsese-directed uh, Netflix show, Pretend It's a City, which is just following around resident New York City wit 
Fran Lebowitz as she talks about everything from pedestrians on the streets of New York, which honestly is incredibly boring. I think they should cut out every observation of hers that like a comic strip from the 80s could have made. Um, you have to dig deep to get the great stuff. The first yes. episode is a lot of people use cell phones. Isn't that crazy? I don't have one. Oh. Right. No, it's like, no, I, I know what stand-up from 1991 sounds like. You don't have to reiterate that to me. <laughs> but, when she, but like, this is like a queer woman who, who's one of these like New York people who wears a uniform, like has a particular blazer, a shirt, a pair of jeans, you know, like Michael Kors or somebody, like a real fixture in New York mm-hmm. type. And... Mm-hmm. When she gets into things like knowing famous musicians in New York, uh, knowing Andy Warhol or Charles Mingus, that's when it gets interesting and it becomes less about relatable foibles of humankind and more about, here's what excellence is. Let me tell you my definition thereof. And uh, I think Mm -hmm. it's really a lot of fun to watch. I will say, if you haven't seen Public Speaking, which was Martin Scorsese's (laughs) sort of uh, first thing about her from 10 years ago for HBO, which is literally the same thing. Him and Fran Lebowitz hanging out and him laughing at everything she says. That one is better. It's just 90 minutes, and it's her talking about things like how AIDS wiped out like a generation of amazing connoisseurship. Like, the people mm-hmm. who died of AIDS were the ones who would go to the ballet and be like, Suzanne Farrell can't keep her leg up. I think she may as well kill herself. And she talks about how the, mm-hmm. the audience is just as important as the performers. But I will say, Fran Lee Boots, for me, goes down real easy. I watched like seven episodes of this, and it felt like it took 15 minutes. So I recommend it. Oh, wow. She's great. Um, and I like that a lot of people were sort of um, discovering Fran with Netflix, yeah. to be honest. You know, like as a name that they sort of knew. Uh, I was obviously familiar with Fran Leibowitz, but I wasn't like, I'm sure, a stan, you know? Uh, so it was nice to sit down and just sort of take it in. Plus, I love when um, Marty is just like having a fucking good time. Yeah, Scors- Marty Scorsese sitting there is just cracking up at everything she says, and it's like, that is the best Marty. Like, I love his Instagram, too. Yeah, um, but like, and also I had forgotten, like, he had put her in a, a minor role in The Wolf of Wall Street. Like, you you see Fran here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. also, something I want to say uh, in appreciation of Fran Leibowitz is she's somebody who put out two books in the late 70s that were about mm-hmm. New York called Metropolitan Life and Social Studies. And ever since then, she's had the world's most famous case of writer's block, hasn't written much of anything other than a few articles here or there. Mm-hmm. But honestly, the problem is she is a born talker, not a born writer. Yeah. So I like that we are now moving the narrative away from she's not producing anything to what the fuck is wrong with being good at talking? We live in the podcast mega multiverse right now. Like there should be more mm-hmm. proficient talkers and she still is one of the greats. I do think you'll find some of her opinions a little trite and outdated, which it makes sense given the fact that she doesn't have a cell phone and doesn't seem to operate even things like a microwave. Like something about her is deeply, <laughs> deeply unaware of technology. But um, she's still fun. Talking about her writing, the the one part that was intriguing to me is, you know, they sort of compare her with Toni Morrison, uh, and where she talks about how, uh, you know, writing is like she doesn't think that there are any good writers who enjoy writing because it's always like this miserable exercise. And maybe you've just gotten to the point that she's a speaker yeah. and mm-hmm. not a writer. Because when they contrast it with Toni Morrison talking about how she loves to write, you know, I'm like... Yeah, and when you read like a Toni Morrison book, like you, you can tell. feel <laughs> the energy of um, someone who loves writing, loves her audience, and loves writing for Black people. You know, um, you could tell when someone uh, is 
strained by the process of writing. And sometimes it's good, but, you know, not everyone wants to read Hemingway. Totally. (laughs) That's true. I will make one small, probably ill-informed comment. But from what I know about Fran, she is a biting humorist and that is not fun to Mm -hmm. observe everyone and to be having these like iconoclastic ideas about what they're doing Mm -hmm. and not not to undercut what Toni Morrison's doing but I do notice the difference between stand-up comedians and playwrights (laughs) like dramatic playwrights is what I'm saying well you know Fran maybe should have a podcast you know because people listen to us complain every week (laughs) Uh, right she she does it at double speed basically (laughs) and she establishes it doesn't make things better but that's just what we do yes (laughs) I was gonna say she made one awesome observation which is that she did love writing until she was paid to do it exactly and i think that's something Mm -hmm. writers fail to inspect about themselves like why they got into writing in the first place and whether or not being paid for it damages the love of the thing that makes you good at it or the thing that keeps you inspired yeah 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 oh absolutely i mean i feel like we all the three of us probably all battle with that right Uh, now being employed as writers right (laughs) you know yeah during our shot conversation i told you about how i went back and looked at like some old like stuff I wrote on the internet when I was like being paid by like the Daily Beast mm-hmm. or BuzzFeed to write things and I look at them and I'm like child what were you doing yeah it's a no it was a little content machine though you didn't have a choice I mean like you were you know <laughs> uh, it's interesting to me it was paying bills it, well, yeah, sure paying bills paying bills and buying drugs uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I was going to segue into Pretend It's a City anyway Lewis from Aida talking about Leibowitz. Leibowitz I knew it and I, I it was a funny, well, funny story <laughs> I did not know that Pretend It's a City had come out. Like, I first heard of it because um, I saw people tweeting about Leibovitz, and I was like, are they talking about Annie Leibovitz? I sent a text to um, my roommate, Royce, and asked him, what is going on with Annie Leibovitz on Twitter? Uh, And he was like, oh, you know, she's always doing something. Like, Twitter's talking about her. I was like, okay. And I keep looking. I thought that, like, she had done the Kamala cover. Um, Mm. (laughs) I was like, was I mistaken? It wasn't Tyler. And then I found out it was Fran Leibowitz. And then I told Royce he was an idiot. I just said this week also that (laughs) Annie Leibovitz, the photographer, was for years involved with Susan Sontag, the very salty writer. If you want to look up a salty woman... Look up interviews with Susan Sontag where she is not putting up with any question whatsoever and rejecting the premise thereof. <laughs> I mean, try to read try to read notes on camp. Girl. Um, there, 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 there are truly 20 different contradictory things in that essay. Right. Um, but I will say, this series doesn't get into anything personal about Fran Lebowitz, really. Like, you don't find anything out mm. about her past. And to me, and I said this on Twitter... There is no way she was not romantically involved with Annie Leibovitz at one time. If Annie Leibovitz could date Susan Sontag, there's no way she couldn't date Fran Leibovitz. So I want somebody Mm. to get to the bottom of this. I want Martin Scorsese to get into this. That's why Fran needs a podcast. Exactly. Spill it. But honestly, that's how older lesbian women would get away with, you know, queer marriage laws. You would just pick someone who has the same last name as you so you can have a... Yeah. (laughs) Also, lastly, speaking of older lesbian women, um, didn't anyone see that Gail King interview? (laughs) Ira. Ira. I am kidding. Speak on it. I know that she and Oprah are not lesbian lovers. We've all seen the interview where Oprah said that she is the mother she never had. The sister (laughs) everyone would want. The friend everyone (laughs) deserves. It is wild to think about the fact that that quote, which is just a meme on the internet, comes from a time when Oprah sat down for an interview and was asked, 
are you licking Gail's box, basically. <laughs> Like, like she was asked, are you in a lesbian relationship with Gail King, your best friend? And she wrote an impromptu poem about her. <laughs> Those are actually on Sedman's cue cards he had for Oprah in the interview. <laughs> Please lie. Truly, <laughs> the, the, one of the least weird things about Oprah is her friendship with Gail. Uh, right. <laughs> people just don't understand friendships. So Gail did this interview about this girl who... What happened? Like, she robbed somebody and then claimed she didn't? And she also was the dumbest person I've ever heard? This woman, Maya Ponsetto, who's 22 years old, was basically arrested in Ventura County Thursday after this interview was conducted with Gail via Zoom. But they also had cameras there to sort of um, catch her. Basically, uh, she thought that her phone was stolen by this 14-year-old black kid uh, and assaults him and accuses him of taking her phone. Uh, it's caught on camera, and then she goes on Gail King and argues with Gail. And it truly was disturbing in so many respects, mostly disturbing because she was dubbed Soho Karen, and um, I truly hate the word Karen. At this oh my point. God, mm. if I have to hear it one more time. Not everyone is a fucking Karen. When they talked about Karens descending on the Capitol, I was like, no, no, Karens aren't actual terrorists, baby. Like, yeah, like murderers. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Also, at a certain point, I really want our culture to be aware of like the shelf life of stupid jokes. <laughs> like, can we just fucking move on? I'm so tired uh, of it. Enough, Lewis. Enough. Um, <laughs> I got my phone back. I've already had my phone returned to me. Painful. This bitch is out of her fucking mind. I don't have any kind words about it. She's like, calls, she's a 22 year old woman who calls herself a girl and in the same breath calls this 14 year old black boy that she assaults, allegedly, I think I have to say, but we know what's going on. Uh, she calls him a guy and like this, her lawyer is sitting next to her freaking out and she's just being a bitch and wearing a hat that says daddy, most importantly. Bitch, what is wrong with you? I will say I am supportive of these once every six months or so Gail King interviews where she basically is an immovable rock and the person she's interviewing just falls the fuck apart in front of her. You know, like the R. Kelly situation where she just like Mm. mutters Robert over and over again and he (laughs) descends into terror. Yeah, I I like this element of Gail's career and I like the idea that this 22-year-old woman thought bringing her lawyer on TV during her interview was going to help her. And then she ignores the lawyer anyway. And people felt bad for the lawyer, but that's what the money's for. Right. (laughs) They're not friends. Who cares? Yeah. I usually have patience for people and I'm empathetic and all that, but this woman needs her whole ass beat. Like just three minutes in a room with Ronda Rousey. No questions asked. Okay. (laughs) Fuck it up. On that note, (laughs) when we're back, we'll be joined by Riz Ahmed. Keep It is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. Lewis? Yes? When you see Footprints in the Sand, that was when I carried you in my Barefoot Dreams robe. Now, is that a Leona Lewis song? (laughs) No? 
Uh, if you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams, especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary. With those 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams celebrates being the originators of everyone's favorite luxe home blanket. And while many have attempted to duplicate their blankets, robes, and more, Barefoot Dreams' fabrication and quality cannot be replicated, so don't believe the dupes. Girl, this blanket is it. I effing love this blanket. I'm thinking about it right now, and I want to jump in my bed, which is sponsored by something that we'll do another ad for momentarily. Get ready. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Jesus, get a life, Oprah. My God. (laughs) Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort as their collection of ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are made with premium materials. Their products make the perfect gifts, too. Uh, I throw this thing on. I wear it like a shawl. I look exactly like Ellen Burstyn. And (laughs) I am the coziest a human being can be. Because by the way, it's still that time in Los Angeles where it's like pretty mild outside and then your apartment is cold. I can't explain Mm. it. I don't know things like basic science. For Keep It listeners, you can get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code KEEPIT15. Don't miss out on Barefoot Dreams soft, soothing fabrics that will bring luxury to your life. Twenty twenty was a big year for our Emmy winning guest. Not only did he release his second studio album, The Long Goodbye, he is also getting Oscar buzz for his career best performance. I will personally say that I think it is uh, as Ruben in Sound of Metal. Please welcome Rizamed. Thank you guys for having me. Um, you are truly such a versatile actor. I want to say I feel like you can do almost anything. Uh, and watching this movie, um, which is about a a drummer who sort of loses his hearing um, and learns to grapple with that, you play so many different facets of this character, uh, and you really go on like a whole journey, and we're there with you because it's so immersive too. Just the the sound design must have been sort of like um, a dream um, for the person working on this film too. Uh, so. Can you just tell us a bit about your experience making this film? Well, thank you so much for the kind words. I mean, I almost don't know where to start because, you know, as implied in your question, there's so many facets to this film. There's the sound design. There's the way in which we shot it. There's the unusual number of deaf actors in this film. There's a fact that the film is subtitled. And, of course, there's a very long preparation process for a role like this where I learned to play the drums and, uh, learned American Sign Language over the course of, of most of a year. And so it, there's just so much to it. It's only now that I've finished the film, the film is out there in the world and I have to talk about it to people that I'm able to almost kind of compartmentalize and see the wood for the trees. And But the process of making it was hopefully as immersive as the audience's experiences are watching it. It was one of those kind of crazy experiences where when we finished the film, I turned to the director, Darius, and believe it or not, this is his first film. Um, I turned to him and said, you know, in a way, if no one sees this film, I don't care because it has just been one of those kind of life-changing growth experiences for me, you know, just taking me to places that I hadn't been before as an actor emotionally, but also in learning those skills and in spending time in those subcultures of the punk scene and the, and the amazing deaf community in New York. Mm-hmm. 
the what happens to this character, how he loses his he- hearing very dramatically and super quickly, did you have to seek out people this has happened to in order to learn how this character would have reacted? Because as I was watching you in this movie, I was thinking, I feel like this is how maybe I would react in a similar situation, but it's so unusual that I actually have no idea. Right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's weird, isn't it? Because um, it's hard to know how you would react in that situation. And the fact is that people react very differently. There's no one deaf experience or hard of hearing experience. Some people are born deaf. Some people are culturally deaf without having any hearing loss. For example, if you're a child of deaf adults, you may grow up in deaf culture without yourself being biologically you know, deaf. Um, there are often people who are late deafened. So who won't speak with a, with a deaf accent, for example, because um, English is their first language. So there's all these different experiences. And in a way, what I learned very quickly is there's no kind of taking a census and working out, you know, what the kind of statistical average is and, and trying to represent and portray that. It was very much about just trying to lean into the specificity of Ruben as a character. And, and rather than thinking about what his experiences of hearing loss is, is not kind of plan for that or control how you might respond to that is to kind of try and live in that experience to, to live into the character in such a way where you can just be present when it happens. And so I'll give you an example. And I'm realizing very quickly that talking about this film has proven so tricky because it, it, there's just, it was just a kind of crazy world building process we went on. Let me give you an example. We were like, okay, how are we going to, how am I going to try and respect the reality of hearing loss and catch a glimpse of that? What we decided to do is we got hearing aids and then we flipped them into a white noise setting and then we customized them to make them really tiny and placed these audio blockers now, I guess you could call them, deep into my ear canal. And they cut out mm. all noise, including the sound of my own voice. And then I gave those controls to the director so that he could at different moments in different scenes suddenly just all of a sudden just cut out all my hearing. And so often those moments of shock, surprise, imbalance, disorientation, they're very, they're authentic. They're, you know, spontaneously captured. And so we kind of tried to create the conditions where we could really live in the experience. You know, the goodbye scenes are really me and the other actor saying goodbye. They got on a plane, they can't come back to say after that. Darius, our director, created all these conditions where it just felt as real as possible. Talking to you right now is still so jarring, if, especially if Sound of Metal is the first thing that you've that someone has seen you be in, because you as a person is so different than the affect that Ruben has and the personality. Mm-hmm. He's an American punk, like it's just so shocking. And it's I think all great roles do that, and all great actors like yourself do that. But I wanted to ask you, playing this character whose whole life dissolves kind of in front of him, his girlfriend leaving and him having to move where he's where he lives what he's doing everything changes for Ruben and while you are acting that that role what does that do for you in your personal life and how does your own identity change through this characterization thank you first of all that's really kind of you um but you know it's, it's interesting because I think this role does deal with the question of identity a lot and that's part of what drew me to it. I think we're living in a time where identity is on the tip of everyone's tongue. And for many good reasons and for other not so good reasons, identity politics is kind of like at the forefront of our culture. And I thought it'd be interesting to play a character who's, as you're saying, his entire identity transforms over the course of two hours. You know, he starts off as a blonde punk drummer in a relationship <laughs> in an RV, ends up as a shaven-headed deaf person in recovery for addiction, not in a relationship in the middle of Europe, 
living who knows where. You know, part of what Ruben learns on this journey as a character and part of what I think I learned in this project and what I hope a lot of people might take from this role is that actually our identities are often quite paper thin. You know, even that we think the things that we think are kind of, you know, bedded into who we are or even our DNA, often the identity we place around that is, is a social construct. And, you know, Ruben's identity is called into question in the most fundamental way for, as a hearing person to a deaf person. So it certainly made me realize that underneath all these circumstances that we think define us, there's actually this, this kind of core of humanity that, that is who we really are. And that transcends black, white, you know, deaf hearing, tattoos or not. <laughs> um, it was interesting to live through that transformation. It changed the way I look up identity mm-hmm. and my own identity as well. Mm-hmm. Speaking about um, identity in the film too, um, it, it, it starts out um, with your character, Ruben, um, sort of going to um, this place to deal with um, his hearing loss. Um, and there's a conversation about how Ruben is not religious um and then the people there those say that they're in the process of helping people and it's not about converting people but then the film sort of does have this sort of um feel of embracing some sort of higher power whether that's um in religion or within yourself um and i just wonder how you um connect with um your identity and religion and whether or not this film had some sort of um impact on your own um thought process Uh, i love these questions it's so interesting because the first thing that happens when your identity gets disrupted is your ego gets disrupted right Mm -hmm. your ego is your idea of who you are and when you disrupt the ego that's when you kind of create space uh in your being in your consciousness for something bigger than and other than yourself which I think is what spirituality is, is, is connection to something bigger than and other than yourself, you know, to, to a greater whole, whether that's even a community or an idea or ideals or a divine source. And, and it's interesting because, you know, it's often in that, in those moments when we're kind of brought to our knees and when we're at our most vulnerable, that we feel that, that connection to something bigger. I, I look at it like this. It's like, Ruben has this realization that is actually very similar to a realization I've been having during this pandemic, you know, to answer your question, how, how is some of those themes in the film around spirituality reflecting my own life? This pandemic has taught us the same thing that Ruben learns in the film, which is you don't control anything. We have no control and we like to think we have so much control. And when you let go of that illusion of control, you realize, well, if I don't control anything, if I don't even control my own body, in the way that Ruben does it, you know, or, or Zed in my other film, Mughal Mowgli, you know, if you don't even control your own body, then maybe everything you have is a gift, you know. Maybe I don't control anything. Everything I have has been given to me. And you suddenly move to this kind of, like, gratitude mentality rather than this entitlement mentality, you know. And I think this can often happen. That's why I say, you know, often people who have the least in society give the most generously. Is when you, you, you're really aware of your fragility and your vulnerability, you realize that everything you have is fleeting and it's a gift and it puts you into that gratitude, that sense of interdependence and connection. So Ruben starts to glimpse that towards the end of the film. And, and, and that's certainly something that I feel like I've connected to more over the course of the pandemic, you know? Mm-hmm. 
Something that is notable to me about this coming Oscar season, which is already delayed, of course, is that this particular category, Best Actor, is shaping up to be, I think, one of the best years in recent memory. Like, we have your performance. We have um, Anthony Hopkins in The Father. I don't know if you've seen that yet. Or Delroy Lindo in The Five Bloods. And I was wondering, like, have you seen your quote-unquote competition yet? Because if, if, like, I were on the verge of being nominated for an Oscar, I feel like I would be thrilled to see everything else. I think I wouldn't be egotistical about it, but I have no idea. So I was wondering if you have seen, uh, you know, the others in this category yet. Yeah, I have. Um, yeah. All these performances that, that you're kind of speaking about, it feels joyous, man. It, it feels so joyful to... To, I don't know, to kind of see people doing amazing work and to see people being encouraged for it and celebrated for it. You know, I'm not as good at kind of receiving praise myself. Um, I know something about the way my brain is wired. I kind of tend to filter that out and, yeah, let's fast forward through that bit. Like, how can I do better? How can I do, you know? And that's often how, actually, I think a lot of people are, you know, I think, um, and, and particularly from creative people can be like that. So I'm kind of thinking, you know, in answer to your question, less about like, how does it feel for me? Feels kind of weird, kind of lovely. I'm really glad to see that um, whatever happens, I'm just glad to see people are shining a light on this film because I believe in it in so many reasons. It's shining a light on lives we don't normally see on screen. But in terms of like other people's work, I, I kind of feel like I am realizing more and more that creativity is, is, is a team sport. You know, it's not a solo sport we all kind of inspire each other we're all kind of standing on the shoulders of people that went before us we're all kind of like looking to our sides as we're running this race we're running it together not against each other so i kind of feel just really inspired you know right now to to see some of this some of this beautiful work you know to see what chad Bozeman was was is it yes towards the end of his life you know, and to hold that and to bring so much of his soul and heart and spirit to that role. See what Anthony Hopkins is able to do, you know, after whatever, 50 years in the game to still be going to new places. Mm -hmm. To see an actor like Delroy Lindo, who's kind of just been such a, you know, it, it's beautiful. You know, Stephen Yeun, it's... it's Stephen Yeun. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, mm -hmm. just, I just feel happy to see these awesome artists um, getting their shine and I feel inspired by them. And when I feel inspired, I just feel excited i feel positive about all right what's next you know how can i yeah. learn from these people and move forward now you're making me mad because i'm the only one who hasn't seen minari yet i still i need <laughs> to see that one i'm i'm excited um uh, speaking of great men i want to congratulate you for being the fourth muslim actor that hollywood has allowed in <laughs> we're really that's you know was, we had rami hassan and kamel and now you i mean and i have this at the forefront of my mind mahershala 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 okay okay fine. mahershala's fine. got two oscars come on but it's not, you're right. Oh, man. He's in. It's He's in. I'm the black Muslim that forgot the black Muslim. That's yeah. ridiculous. Um, <laughs> I wanted to. stereotype about how black Muslims are overlooked. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you did a speech in 2017 at the House of Commons about diversity concerning Muslim characters. And then in turn, these two friends, Shaf Chowdhury and Dr. Sadia Habib, created a literal test called the Riz test that, you know, is kind of matches the Bechdel test in the way that it concerns itself with the criteria of how Muslims are represented in film and TV, um, which I actually look to quite often when I am trying to write black Muslim characters, women, men. I mean, even awareness for myself, I think, is important. So I wanted to ask you, 
what does Muslim representation in films mean to you? And how have you felt like that's improving or maybe worsening over the past few years? I mean, I guess I'll just say that speech I gave at the you know, parliament in London wasn't so much just about Muslim representation. It was about representation as a concept. And we hadn't even got to that point to get granular. People were still talking about diversity, you know, and this conversation has moved so quickly. It's, it's easy to forget. I, I, and I was very much against this word diversity. I think diversity feels like an added extra that you, a little garnish that you sprinkle onto your meal. You know, as opposed to the, the meat and two veg, as we say. Yeah, it's like representation is fundamental to what we, you know, what we expect from our culture and our politics. So that's something that that, that speech was about. And in terms of how Muslims are represented right now, you know, the risk test that you're talking about, I didn't have anything to do with setting that up. But, you know, I, I support and applaud anyone who's trying to kind of broaden and, and amplify that conversation. It's interesting, you know, I always think that it works in stages. You, you sometimes get the stereotype right at the beginning of you know any kind of community being when it starts out being represented it could be the, the corner shop owner the terrorist the, the black drug dealer the the, yeah. the east asian kung fu master whatever it is and then you kind of go to stage two which is okay it's taking place on culturally specific terrain but it's subverting those stereotypes and some i've done films like that like four lions or road to guantanamo or reluctant fundamentalist mm-hmm. it's still you know shackled to a Muslim conversation and those dominant narratives, but it's trying to challenge them. And then I think ideally you get to a place like playing Rubin or, uh, you know, Rogue One and all this kind of stuff where you're just a guy, right? Mm -hmm. You're just a guy and it's Mm -hmm. not shackled to ethnicity or identity in that way. One thing I would say is I wanted to see, I wanted to be a fourth stage now, I realized, which is I want to be able to be Muslim and still be just a guy. Yeah. You know what I mean? I want to be able to play Rizwan and Akbar and whatever. I want to see a character called Ada and the specificity of her heritage is part of a character, but it's not really about that. You know, in the same way, that, you know, mm-hmm. the Gellers in Friends are, are, are Jews. And, but it's not about mm-hmm. that. That's all right. You know, it's like whatever. You know, it's, it's just like a throwaway of, joke. It's like a punchline maybe once ever. Like, yeah, whatever. It's, it's not a big deal. Yeah. You don't have to yeah. make a big deal mm-hmm. because it isn't one. And so... I think that we there's always a certain distance to go, but we have undoubtedly made progress since then. You look back to 2017, none of the people, you know, the top five that you put, you know, mentioned there in, in, in your rundown, none of them have really come through in that same way, you know, yet. So things are shifting. I am hopeful. But there's always work to be done. And we always got to interrogate our own ideas of what progress looks like even, you know. Mm-hmm. I would like to add a fifth, a fifth stage that's a sci-fi world where Muslims rule. Allahu Akbar. <laughs> I'm kidding. The <laughs> signal's breaking up for some reason at this point. I would uh, be remiss uh, if I didn't bring up two of my favorite sort of roles that you've done while you're here. Um, I first feel like I saw you in Nightcrawler, which is one of my favorite films of the past um, decade. Um, I mean, Jake is so amazing in it and Renee is and then you are. Um, Two, I truly just remember sort of being like, this person with Jake Gyllenhaal is amazing. Who is it? And then later discovering, oh, this is Riz Ahmed. Um, and then also, I had forgotten that um, you were in Girls. Uh, and so I rewatched that episode. And you singing Kanye West's Slow Jam was <laughs> reminded me that that's one of my favorite sort of comedic performances, <laughs> too. Um, and so I wonder, you know, like, um, what kind of stuff are you 
drawn to? Because we've seen you do a lot of comedy, uh, and then we've seen you do some darker stuff like um, Nightcrawler and Sound of Metal. Although I do want to point out for people listening, Sound of Metal is actually more uplifting than you would think. It's quite tender. It took me so long to watch Mm -hmm. it because I thought that it was going to be some like Darren Aronofsky kind of shit. Uh, (laughs) And I was horrified of actually watching it. Um, But there's that. And then, of course, your music too. You know, I actually really love your album, um, Long Goodbye. Um, You have the song with Jay Sean on it um, that I think is fantastic. So, you know, you're just... There's so many things that you could do. What do you enjoy doing? Um, you know, it's it's interesting because I think that's one of the questions that I think you continue to ask yourself and to learn new answers to over the course of your career or of your creative life. You know, what do I what do I actually want to do? And you start off thinking, what do I think I should do? Um, or what do people what do other people think I should do? You know what I mean? What do other people mm-hmm. think I should do? And you think, no, no, what, what do I think I should do? But of course, you've internalized other people's idea of what you think you should do. And it takes you a while to kind of get through all of that and just kind of follow your own creative curiosity, which is something that I try and follow more now. And particularly, I think, you know, starting out, and as to, to Ada's point, talking about there being not too many South Asians or Muslims out there, you know, in, in this field at, at different times, um, feeling a certain kind of responsibility to represent. And now I kind of think less about representing others, more about just presenting myself. And so what I'm drawn mm-hmm. to more and more is, is, is kind of opportunities to kind of bring all of myself to something. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's weird because I think I grew up kind of code switching a lot between classes and cultures. And that, that in a way, that's how I started out acting. Mm-hmm. You're acting every day in different social settings, family and school and whatever it is. That, that was cool because it allowed me to kind of start acting almost before I even went on stage. But the mm-hmm. the weird thing is you kind of internalize this idea that you always got to leave part of yourself at the door, mm-hmm. you know, before you enter any room. And increasingly what I'm interested in is roles or projects that will allow me to bring all of myself to something. Something like Sound of Metal was just such an immersive emotional role. It wasn't like come play this type mm-hmm. or that type or, you know, I'm coming in to fit in and just be the color blue in this rainbow. <laughs> i got to bring my whole rainbow to this. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Or, um, you know, w- with the music projects, so I released this album, The Long Goodbye, and we created a short film to go with it, which, you know, really pleased to say, mm-hmm. it's been, you know, kind of become a thing when it's in its own right in the festival circuit. And um, by this amazing director you guys should check out called Anil Karia. And that's an opportunity to bring, you know, my spoken word, my music, acting and my politics and kind of put it all in one place. So I guess what I'm looking for increasingly is an opportunity to not have to, you know, leave part of myself at the door when I enter a project is to be able to bring all of myself to it. Mm-hmm. So maybe we need like a musical from you then. That's exactly what we need. Some theater. Yes. Some, thea- some theater. I want some you pizzazz. Know? <laughs> enough. I mean, you know, one of the films that you mentioned, uh, Mogul Mowgli, which isn't out in the US yet, mm-hmm. that is kind of a mm-hmm. musical. It's kind of a Sufi horror musical uh comedy you know it's like you know like you said it's like you've done this you've done that we wanted to create something you can bring it bring bring it all together it's yeah it's it's definitely something different yeah well thank you um i mean you mentioning the thing about um 
you know, what people expect of you too. I think that during the pandemic, a lot of us have been struggling with that. And there was this James Baldwin, Maya Angelou interview going yeah. around, which is fantastic. People should watch it. Um, but it, him talking about, you know, the fact that you failed as an artist once you start trying to do what everyone thinks that you do yeah. well, you know? Yeah. And Maya Angelou saying, um, when you believe you're on press, you're finished. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, you're always learning you always feel have that imposter syndrome it's, it's interesting because I was on one of these zoom calls with Gary Oldman one of these kind of actor roundtable things mm. recently and uh, you know he's such a someone I really look up to and I put this thing on the table of like you know imposter syndrome and how actually is quite common and he put his hand up and said I still feel that I still feel like but people are about to tap me on the shoulder and be like we found you out can you go home please <laughs> and I think it can be really helpful because it stops you getting complacent but within limits you know particularly those of us who are used to not belonging in certain rooms we've got to keep that in check and and also alongside that remind ourselves that now nah, i am meant to be here but yeah that that imposter syndrome that sense of always feeling like you're starting from scratch it never goes away you know every film you come back going what is acting how do i what is this i've been keeping a diary <laughs> every week of shooting I've ever done in my life mm. part of my career for 15 years now and um, it's so funny because I think that if I do that I'll, oh, I'll never have to start from scratch dude you look at the notes I was writing in 2005 and in 2020 it's the same shit without <laughs> <laughs> exception you know you're reminding yourself of the same stuff that you constantly have to learn and relearn hopefully you just it goes a bit deeper each time that Gary Oldman has imposter syndrome when he has played Winston Churchill and Beethoven <laughs> is fucking shocking. I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> uh, before you go, um, was there anything exciting that you like learned from looking back at your journals that you were surprised that you had written about acting? I guess the surprising thing is just how the first idea you have is usually the right one. It's not like I thought acting or creativity was this thing, but actually is this thing. No, when you, when you feel the truth of something, you feel it, you know. It was just my ability to articulate it or even my desire to try and pin it down has changed. I just feel mm -hmm. like I was using all kinds of wild metaphors before that just made no sense. <laughs> uh, and then that, that kind of starts to refine itself a little bit and, and you say, I understand what I'm talking about. But I've kind of realized more and more now, it's like, well, what are you doing by trying to understand this, you know, intellectually? You're trying to control it. You're trying to pin it down. And more and more, I kind of, I kind of guess what I'm realizing is like, you know, creativity is about surrender. It's about submission. You know, it's about turning up empty, and putting yourself at the mercy of, 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 of the process. Yeah, it's interesting how the, the truth doesn't change. It's just your attempt to try and pin it down and control it. Uh, does that's all going in my diary tonight so thank you <laughs> <laughs> everything you just said <laughs> well on that note thank you for being here sound of metal is out now on amazon prime so make sure you check that out Explore the world's hidden wonders on the Atlas Obscura podcast, a village in India where everyone's name is a song, a boiling river in the Amazon, 
a spacecraft cemetery in the middle of the ocean. Every day, the Atlas Obscura podcast will blow your mind in 15 minutes. You can find it on the SiriusXM app, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to follow the show so you never miss an episode. I don't know what the fuck was going through our brains uh, Tuesday morning last week when we were recording this show. Peace. Thinking about <laughs> Joe Biden's electoral college win being certified the next day and not expecting utter chaos. Right. No, I didn't even know there was a planned protest. That's how behind I was. I was at such a moment of serenity. I regret it all. I knew there was a planned protest, but that I couldn't make the logical steps into, obviously this is the beginning of like a harebrained, susical, raccoon pelt-wearing revolution. Uh, I should have been, I feel bad that I didn't guess further. Good God. It felt like the 1830s, like bum-rushing, insurrection. Like, does your uncle have cholera? Like, what in the pioneer (laughs) age shit is going on? I felt sort of silly um not guessing too mostly just because i was talking to um friends you know who sort of have family in dc you know and they were sort of like they're getting out uh and there's always this idea about violence is obviously going to come from the trump administration um we've seen it over the past four years we've seen it um happening to peaceful protesters during the summer and that usually came from law enforcement right but this was the first time the clampets hopped in their um <laughs> cars and just uh trucked on up to the Capitol. beep beep, okay. beep, uh, beep. <laughs> granny smith went to washington <laughs> oh, God. is that my bessie in an insurrection <laughs> beep beep <laughs> both Chambers of Congress were interrupted by a violent right-wing white nationalist insurrection that left five people dead. And just looking back at these photos, watching it unfold on the news, too, was horrifying. I was at the dentist that morning, uh, and I'm getting texts from my roommate about it. Other friends like are like lighting up our text threads, and I like truly did not get the gravity of this until I got back home and turned on the news and you're seeing that this is still going. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think also something that was weird for me was I was sort of seeing images out of order. I saw people approaching the uh, Capitol. uh, Then I saw people on the steps. And then weirdly, because it's the Capitol building and they have cameras going all the time, once people were inside, it was weirdly a moment built for television because Mm -hmm. you got to see everything really clearly too. And it would be honestly one thing if everybody who stormed the Capitol was like wielding a gun and like bulldozed the police in the way. But what was so crazy to me was the amount of footage of random people just walking around inside. You know, like these people aren't even being stopped. You know, these like strange people just sort of having no idea what to do walking around and that's when it got extra eerie for me like who is letting this occur Mm -hmm. how many layers deep does this go you know and Mm -hmm. so it went from being violent and strange which we see a lot of violent and strange images anyway and then it changed (laughs) to truly twisted and disturbing and so grim it just was like they get to win it was such a question mark yeah it can't be understated enough how 
the four years of Trump have sort of given us the idea that, yes, Republicans and right-wing conservatives are evil, um, but so much of the evil that could be committed is always undercut by the sheer idiocy right. of like the people in power. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like it makes you horrified for um, someone else who's smarter than Trump to come along and try and take some sort of advantage of this because my God, you are staging an insurrection at a coup and you get to the Capitol building and you swarm it to wander the halls. Yeah. <laughs> like whatever, footage of somebody hanging out in Nancy Pelosi's office. Did they realize at that moment, oh yeah, I don't know what Nancy Pelosi does. Like yeah. they just were like <laughs> like zombified into going there and then not really knowing anything that was happening or what to do or why they were there other than they had to be there because it's a big moment that they were seizing about something. It's just so, it, it really feels like a, like a robot apocalypse. Yeah. You know? Well, there's that group of people, you know, these like knockoff Paul Bunyans that are leaving ransom notes in offices. But then there's that other group of people that came to this coup with the real intention of hurting Congress people. Yeah. Whether that was mm-hmm. like, some of them were seen with zip ties. Some of them brought weapons. We know that there were weapons right. there that mm-hmm. weren't owned by the police. Yeah. What were their intentions? These are former military people too, former law enforcement. And that is sort of also why you have had... Nary a word from um, (laughs) police groups around the U.S. about this, even though a police officer fucking died. died, Even though you can see one being like crushed Mm -hmm. um, and others being wounded, you would think that they would be feeling real antsy to get out a statement about this. But you can't really do that when it be your own people. It be your own people, really. Well, here's here's <laughs> a thing that frustrated me also was that Maxine Waters said that she was assured by the police chief of the Capitol that everyone was aware of the protest and that the Congress people would not be there at the Capitol. And then suddenly that changed when it was time to count the electoral votes. And that is a red flag for me in the way that if we're supposed to make sure that our Congress people remain safe, it was like last designated survivor in real life. Like, why were we not taking care of the people who make these important decisions for us? Mm -hmm. And, of course, these people are led there because they are egged on by this fucking rally that Trump has. This nigga's always having a rally. (laughs) Right. Truly, every time I turn on the news, he is standing on some fucking stage yelling at people without teeth. What is <laughs> happening here? Yeah. Who rallies that much? He loves the sound of any applause. It, it's, it's too much. It's, 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 <laughs> he should just sell Amway. That's all he wants to do. I, like the, the scenes of like watching the Capitol Police allow these swarms of people cross the barricades and enter the Capitol grounds was devastating, especially after the summer we just had with Black Lives Matter. Like We saw cops mm-hmm. in tactical gear in like crashing vigils for Elijah McClain in, with children around. Yeah. And then just being like, La-tira, come through to the Capitol and do whatever the fuck you guys want. Mm-hmm. I was particularly chilled seeing um, Corey Bush did an interview where she was talking about, well, where she was barricaded inside. And uh, mm-hmm. for one thing, I just want to say, she really kept her cool in a mm-hmm. sort of heroic way. Like, nobody was asking her to keep her cool. I mean, I fucking love that woman. Yeah. And obviously she kept her cool because she's not a quote-unquote career politician. She got into politics because she was in the streets of Ferguson being just battered and abused by police. So she's seen this shit before, up close. Yes. Her answering questions and being asked on the air about whether she felt safe with Capitol Police and, like, she had to consider for the first time, like, 
God, maybe I wasn't. It, I mean, that was incredibly um, shocking for me to have to watch somebody, again, yeah, who has fought her way to this place and now has this other question to ask about, like, am I in a new type of danger? It was just horrifying. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, the danger, of course, comes from Trump inciting this fucking riot. It comes from pieces of shit like Ted Cruz Mm -hmm. and uh, Josh Hawley, uh, a a name that I just heard of this week, by the way. Exactly. I should not have to know what that man looks like. (laughs) It's, It's just like, it's just like all these random evil white men who just pop up during these events, like Tom Cotton, when he popped up during the <laughs> yeah. summer. Uh, I, I noticed Tom Cotton wasn't writing any op-eds about sending in the National Guard um, <laughs> this week. Mm. Uh, I wonder why. But um, all of these people who kept trying to delegitimize the election, uh, keep talking about voter fraud, they are responsible for this. And finally, Twitter did something about it, and they asked Trump's account and maybe the funniest thing about his account getting suspended was the fact that when he hopped on the POTUS account and tried doing his <laughs> all-cast <laughs> tweeting shit again, he was immediately got. It was like when yeah. I was pretending to be Beto. Just immediately, yeah. <laughs> Twitter, he was axed immediately. And so he is gone. Mm-hmm. And it is... It's it's beautiful because it's like it's it's yes we should have gotten rid of Trump from Twitter years ago but the fact that this cuts off a future revenue stream for him and all he is is a fucking grifter right uh, that is the beauty of it it's harder for him to mobilize but this of course has led to conservatives now saying that they're like Lisa Kudrow in. Um, the Death to 2020 um, thing on Netflix. There's a segment where she's playing a conservative who talks about conservative voices are being silenced. I talked about this on the news. I talked about this on <laughs> my podcast. I yeah. talked about this on Tucker Carlson. Yeah. I talked about it on Tucker Carlson again. <laughs> uh, every Republican is talking about how like now with Parler too, that other social media site with no moderation and how mm-hmm. people are planning to kill congressmen on it. Um, that was removed from by like Apple and Google. Um, everyone is talking about how they are in danger of losing the First Amendment and being silenced. The funniest to me was Megan McCain oh, <laughs> getting on Twitter. I would be embarrassed. To write that shit that she wrote. It's always some principle they're trying to defend. It's never the person. It's always just, <sighs> take hers away too. Do you remember her exact tweet, Lewis? Well, I me- the tweet I remember most is her saying, I miss my dad in the middle of this. <laughs> <laughs> like he would have been some knight in shining armor just oh. anyway. We were supposed to know that. Secondly, by the way, the clips of her on The View recently, Joy Behar is basically holding a flamethrower at this point. Like, why do we even do this? Guys, we have had this moment with Meghan McCain. Please move on. The screenshot of her when Reverend Warnock was uh, (laughs) on The View, her just looking angry, which, by the way, so much has fucking happened that we haven't even been able to celebrate the fact that Warnock and Ossoff won. Oh, yes. And we took control of the fucking Uh. city. But we still have this fucking week to get Mm -hmm. through. Um, A potential impeachment 
uh, another march towards the inevitable where we know that we can't expect Republicans to be on the right side of anything. I can't imagine not wanting to hold the people responsible um, who had you cowering in a fucking corner in the Capitol building. Like, you, you, you almost died. You were in a, and then a you fire drill. back there, business as usual, and you're like, stop the steal. Holly getting on Twitter talking about how Simon Schuster canceled his book. <laughs> oh, my, uh, oh, and the whole deal with calling it Orwellian that his book deal got canceled. It's mm-hmm. not Orwellian, it's Owellian. Because uh, <laughs> books come and go, sweetie. <laughs> Took me a second. <laughs> I really want to look at all of these people's uh, syllabuses from high school and see if any of them ever were even assigned Orwell. I was assigned Orwell once. It was Animal Farm. Yeah, I read I Animal read Farm. It. Mm-hmm. I read Animal Farm. I read 1984 later. But you know what? I'm like, I'm not running around talking about Orwell. Find a new metaphor. No, that man took one intro to philosophy course and read about fucking libertarian socialism. And that's all he knows. <laughs> that's yes. The nigga went to Yale, Harvard mm. Yale, okay? He knows that it is not breaking the First Amendment to cancel a fucking book. Yeah. That is the thing that we have talked about constantly. People assuming that the right to get a book deal, the right to have a Twitter account is like in the First Amendment. It is not. Right. Um, Also, the only thing Orwellian about the past four years is that we have a true like pig god president. So uh, (laughs) Animal Farm (laughs) came to be some weird mixture of 1984 and Animal Farm. And so now here we are in a new sort of social media landscape where um, Trump is not there. And these conservatives are now scrambling for new places to communicate and to plan further violence. And it just feels like we should have seen this coming. And we did see it coming. Mm -hmm. Do you feel slightly unnerved that Trump is not on Twitter? I'm not saying I want him there in any capacity, but there is for me, a bit of an eerie silence to all I'm saying is he's not going to retire gladly. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So it makes me wonder what he'll do next. This is the point in the horror movie where the killer always comes back for one final scare. That's what I'm, yeah. We need need Nev Campbell (laughs) (laughs) up in the White House being like, not in my movie. Not in my movie. (laughs) (laughs) God, I love her. That's what we need right now. A bothered woman with terrific bangs. Well, let's just strap in for whatever this inauguration is going to look like, because I don't know how many more days we have until we can arrest this man, but I I patiently wait for that day. also want to point out that our schedule for this show, unfortunately, is is not in anyone's favor. (laughs) Last year, we did our episode early Mm -hmm. uh, so that we could be released on election day, so that we at least wouldn't be guessing about the results, but... I don't know. As we record this, they're introducing the articles of impeachment. (laughs) Next week, we will be recording this the day before the inauguration. So who knows what will be happening as you're listening. (laughs) Yeah, maybe we'll have ejected into space. Maybe we'll be in space next week. Maybe he created Space Force as his final exit plan. Who knows? Escaping to the moon. That would mean he planned ahead, which uh, is more than I would have anticipated for him. So, <laughs> The only thing I'm going to worry about after this is just what his kids are going to do, because they can still terrorize us on the internet. Oh, yeah. Uh, Ivanka will be throwing Goya beans at all of us. Baron, Baron, <laughs> give me your phone. I have to tweet. <laughs> all right. <laughs> when we're back, 
It's Keep It. And we're back with our favorite segment of the episode. It is Keep It. What a busy week. What, what a, a lot of shit week. to say keep it to. You know what a busier week? Lori motherfucking Harvey. <laughs> oh. Who is already dating another person. I'm just going to jump into my keep it this week. Because it's it's multiple keep it's. It's more so about our obsession with Lori Harvey and who she's dating and what the fuck she's doing. As if we even know what this girl does. Or what her voice even sounds like. But I find us in this annoying position where I know everyone Lori Harvey has dated for the past three years, which for some reason is more men than like a 50-year-old divorcee has ever dated. And that's okay. Like, I'm right there with her. She's dated Future. She's dated Diddy. She's dated Diddy's son. She's dated Trey Songs, And now she's dating Michael B. Jordan, which is devastating news for all of the world. And more devastating is these like two really creepy grainy photos they posted on Instagram to like reveal to the world that they're together. I love a relationship reveal. What? Like where do you where do y'all find the time? Where do you find to get photos taken? You've been dating for like three minutes. Two of them you used to get photos taken. Um but she's an innovator and I just have to support her hustle because she's really she's ordered the black man Hollywood sampler and I'm excited to see who else she will be dating. Can you pick that up in Guisados? <laughs> <laughs> That's right there. <laughs> uh, Kanye single. Did you get a pang of joy when <laughs> Olivia Wilde and Harry Styles revealed their thing? Are you me? Well, I have this thing where I really believe that this false illusion that I will potentially be with these men one day. So when Harry Styles oh. is um, now not single, like that cuts into my life plans. You feel me? Got it. So that's frustrating. But, mm. um, but See, that though was a more casual celebrity relationship reveal. Mm-hmm. They were just holding hands at a wedding in a park. You know, they yeah. knew it was going to get out, but they were like, "We're doing something normal." Taking photos and announcing that you're in a relationship in that way is very That's is lame. very YouTube influencer. Ugh. Quite. And it's very. It's, it's, they're too pretty. <laughs> there was too many teeth in the photo. Like it was just too beautiful of a reveal. I I just don't, I don't appreciate it. The problem with that, and I've been there, is when you announce that you are sort of with someone online publicly that way. Do you have to make an announcement when it's over? Could you imagine potentially? Because people are because people are going to be assuming. You know, you just repost the photo with like one of the big red no smoking like X through the the couple's <laughs> photo. <laughs> We're done. It's done. <laughs> Olivia Wilde is also in that Fran Lebowitz show, which is so weird. She's Whoa. interviewing her at one part. Anyway, go ahead, Ira. She's in everything. She's in the Bee Gees doc. Right. <laughs> no, she didn't. <laughs> Justin Timberlake is for absolutely no reason. He must have had 36 <laughs> seconds to film because they don't use any footage of him. <laughs> Other than the fact that he played a Gib brother on SNL for years, that is his <laughs> only qualification for being in the Bee Gees documentary. But I want to shout out Lori Harvey, just for like making dry pussies on the internet so mad, <laughs> the amount of women no clue who were writing, who you know, the amount of women who were sort of writing, like there was this tweet from this woman last night, like um, 
I'm 37, you know, and like Lori Harvey is younger than me and has been with more men than um, I've ever been with. And it's like, so. So she's attractive. You're not, you not getting hit? And out there. Is, is that <laughs> like, where you're? Yes. She's attractive. It was like, it's, it's, it's a lot of people mad that they only got like 12 views on their Buss It Challenge. Those are the people <laughs> who are mad at Lori Harvey dating another man. I wish I could maintain the <laughs> roster she has, like the credibility that gives her. She can, she can have anyone now. At this point, that's just high value pussy. So I think what this truly <laughs> reveals is two very exciting things. One, future is uh, basically Dane Cook in that movie. Good luck, Chuck. <laughs> where I hate that you everyone, this movie. everyone sleeps with him and then finds their perfect match. Yes. <laughs> And two, Steve Harvey's Think Like a Man franchise. What's up with that? Right. <laughs> because Lori Harvey seems to be doing the exact opposite of everything in those. Or maybe she is thinking like a man. She really is. She probably studied all that information. And of course, you know who the number one Lori Harvey of all time is? Uh, Wendy Dang, who dated Rupert Murdoch and then Vladimir Putin. That's my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> That's the queen bee. I actually am going to need to leave early so I can go work on a screenplay that's going to be like John Tucker must die with Lori Harvey and we cast all of the men who dated Lori Harvey and their attempts to like, I don't know, put testosterone in her tea. <laughs> do you do you think they all are on a group chat feeling sad about it? I'm sure. Would they exchange, they exchange all of her like really, really rude fuck girl texts? I think so. She said that to me too. Harvey's boys. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> anyway... There's like a next bus where they're all hanging out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lewis, what's your keep it this week? My keep it is, of course, tentative because it's a casting decision. But I have to say, I have tried to wrap my head around this. And just it makes no sense whatsoever. Guys, Nicole Kidman is playing Lucille Ball. Oh. What? First of all, let's think about the dimensions of Lucille Ball. She ain't six foot one in Australian to start. <laughs> Second of all... Second of all, Javier Bardem is playing Desi Arnaz. Wrong? What do they have in common? That's a completely bizarre casting choice. I remember years ago, uh, this Aaron Sorkin uh, production was announced years and years ago, probably five or six years ago, and it was supposed to be Kate Blanchett. Mm -hmm. And I had heard a rumor that it was going to be Oscar Isaac, which felt a little closer to me. But now Kate Blanchett is kind of the master of, like, 50s vocal cadences. So I sort of saw it for her. Like, she could do, the like, the wide eyes and the, the vitamin vegemin bits and then do really intimidating boardroom Lucy, which is what I suspect this movie is really about. Um, it's going it, uh, The way that the movie is structured, apparently, it's about a week of shooting on I Love Lucy where something occurs and she and uh, Desi's careers are put into jeopardy throughout the week. All I can say is, one, we definitely need a Lucille Ball movie. It's really weird to me that we, this is a woman who uh, co-owned Desilu Productions. Uh, she was a, a maven. She also had years and years before I Love Lucy where she made the worst fucking movies. Again, nothing was pointing at this woman being a legend for years and years. <laughs> so I'm interested to see how, how they explore this. But my God, it just feels like so many other people would be better suited to play Lucille Ball. The first person that comes to mind who I think could do the comedy if, the, if it is in the script and then the boardroom part would be Charlize Theron. 
But, and the reason I'm pulling back from that is we already gave her Bombshell, and guys, what was that movie? I'm still mad at that movie, <laughs> whatever the fuck that was. You just need someone who can do a good Ricky. Yeah, it has to be, yeah, you have to get to the, like, the relatable core of her comedy, which remains sort of um, hilarious. Like, if you watch the show, like, it holds up, you know, in a way. Mm-hmm. Kind of like how Ira and I talked about how the thing that is most timeless about Gone with the Wind is Mammy's comedy. Like that kind of like, not this again. You know, like that stuff mm-hmm. is still funny. I Love Lucy was one of my um, favorite shows as a kid. I From the era of um, Nick at Night TV land. Yeah, I totally. Like, so are you, Lewis? Uh, and it was um, on all the fucking time. And so I have seen every episode of Total. There's Lucy. no way I uh, haven't like, seen every uh-uh. episode. So There's many no times. Way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you've seen them more than once, um, which is intriguing because we've probably seen them more than people who were alive while it was actually airing. Because <laughs> totally. they, didn't re- they didn't rerun that show that fucking much as right. they did in the 90s when we were kids, mm-hmm. uh, including the ones where she's out in California. That's the best. And then the color episodes. I fucking love Lucy. Mm-hmm. I, <laughs> I, I like Sorkin. I'm, I'm more okay with Nicole doing this just because she could maybe be fine with a big character like Lucy, but I don't know. The, the thing that gives me pause is Sorkin directing it. Right. <laughs> I thought we established we don't need that. Trial of the Chicago 7 did not give me life. Um, and additionally, <laughs> maybe I should be thankful because you know who was a more intuitive choice and has worked with Sorkin before? Jessica Chastain, Ooh. who's like exactly mm. the age, too. Yeah. Is she funny? Wouldn't have served comedy for me. In The Help, she was funny, but that was brought in a different way. So I don't know if she could do this. It's funny how she always talks about how she's doing um, roles that are strong for women and then does Molly's Game. <laughs> so um, <laughs> That movie, deeply long. You know, I liked... Trial of Chicago 7. We've talked about this on the show. Um, But I like that because it fits into the sweet spot of all the things that Aaron Sorkin is obsessed with. I don't need a Lucy movie that ends with her giving a very long speech (laughs) about comedy and the human condition. Oh, yeah. You never know. We might be getting that. Yeah. Who's playing Vivian Vance? Anyway. I wish there was a stand-up comedian or someone like a com- comedic actress that could. If I could combine Sarah Silverman and like um, just Chelsea Handler, <laughs> if I could make these people, if I could make the right person to play this, but I don't think that's the right choice. I do. I do remember reading about Deborah Messing wanting to play this role, and I think she's closer even. Than- Wishful thinking. She's a dreamer. She <laughs> dreams a lot in her sleep. <laughs> I believe right now Deborah Messing is still retweeting people saying she should have been cast and. It has... Let her live. Uh, I'm Nikki Blonsky from the movie Hairspray Energy, if you know what I'm saying. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, what else, what else is Deborah Messing going to do right now? Because she is in the class of people who I've been especially worried about from Trump leaving Twitter, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is, what do the people who spent all day camped out in his mentions responding in earnest to his tweets, what are they doing with their lives today? Right. I don't. They have to dunk on their own their loved ones. That's I don't it. understand <laughs> the emotion of rage. I don't understand it. Sustained rage? Ew. Find something else to do. All right. All right, Ira, what's your keep it? Uh I have um two keep it's this week. One of them's brief. Uh the first one is why is Andrew Yang running for mayor of New York City? Yeah, I'm not into that. I I didn't know that when you fail at um becoming <laughs> president that you just pick an American city and decide to become mayor because he does not even live full time 
in New York. And then his quote where he says, we live in a two-bedroom apartment in Manhattan. Can you imagine trying to have two kids on virtual school in a two-bedroom apartment and then trying to do work yourself, sir? <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> who, is, who is voting for you when you talk like one of the people the New York Times interviewed at the beginning of the pandemic who talked about how they fled to the Hamptons because they couldn't stand being in their cramped apartment. Yeah, that's tough. That was a very self-sabotaging quote in a rare way. (laughs) So looks like I won't have to worry about Andrew Yang um, becoming mayor of New York after all. (laughs) Anyway, my real keep it this week is to the entire conversation surrounding Sex in the City's reboot. Ooh, okay. The, and just like that is what it's called um, for some reason. I think that's cute. That's a cute title, actually. Yeah, I'm fine with that. Basically, the conversation, though, stems from the fact that Samantha will not be in this reboot. Kim Cattrall uh, will not be involved. Therefore, rendering it unwatchable. (laughs) Yes. uh, They sort of announced this recently before we saw a little teaser that was released and narrated by Sarah Jessica Parker. They announced it right after Filthy Rich was canceled, too, which I feel like was an extra little dig at Kim Cattrall. Um, But there's people on one side of the camp who are like, the show will be fine without Samantha. Uh, And then there's other people who are just sort of like, um, there'll be no sex in the city. (laughs) Um, And I feel like I am sort of of that ilk You know, it's just like the entire show for me was about these four women um, navigating sex. And Samantha was the fun one who like had a lot more sex than everyone else, you know? And it's just sort of like, are you going to introduce a new woman into the group to get that? Um, And I think that at some point, story should be finite. You know, yes. um, I, I say this as a person who still watches Days of Our Lives and that is never <laughs> going to end. But um, we've seen her with Big. We've seen Sex and the City 2, which was an unmitigated disaster. <laughs> Shocking. One of the most, one of the most um, racist films that doesn't have Mickey Rooney in yellow face. Right. Um, the U.S. has still not patched up its relationship with the UAE from that movie. I believe <laughs> it's still strained. I don't think we need it, you know, and it's not stemming from the fact that, you know, it's a story about older women and um, their bodies and sexuality. And, you know, because like I see some people complaining that like they're too old. What are we going to be watching? That's not my problem with it. My problem is just that since Sex and the City left, there have been a lot of knockoffs, Lipstick Jungle, Cashmere Mafia, um, and people try to say that like, Insecure girlfriends are sort of like Sex in the City, but they're not really. We really have not had TV shows with non-white women who are privileged dealing with sex in a fun, interesting way that Sex in the City did, mm-hmm. you know? Like, those had wild sex scenes on them. Right, yeah. And they were always funny. And I feel like we don't get that, you know? Like, we don't see it in black shows. Mm-mm. One thing I will say is we weirdly have had a test bubble with which to appreciate Sex and the City without Samantha, which is Ease reruns, which it, where Samantha's largely cut out because her scenes are too um, risque oh, or wow. uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. full of profanity or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's not like I love those episodes, really. I do still watch them. Honestly, my thing is, I think you could just do a Miranda show. I think she's a little bit of like 
um, just a more interesting character. Someone, someone you could do a lot with in her fifties, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I'm cautiously optimistic. I do think these are three of the best performances on TV in the past 20 years. So I'm excited to get those ladies back. But you're right. Like, if it's, if it's even slightly bad, it's, we're just going to feel like shit. I mean, speaking of Deborah Bess, like it's sort of like when Willa Grace came back, right? And we were like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's here. Mm-hmm. But, like, it introducing nothing really to the cultural conversation I'm just thinking about the old series. Yeah. It just, it just sort of immediately stalled, and we were fine with it for two years or whatever. Yeah. Plus, um, there's a series like this that feels like such a time capsule of when it was, and I do worry about um, efforts t- that might happen to fix that, like its diversity. Um, I'm like, I don't want to oh, see God. this show trying to tackle that. I just feel like let things live in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, it reminds me of the X-Files reboot, which came back and then tried to like be a bit more woke. Um, but it was still the same white men writing it from the 90s. And they were decidedly very not in tune with um, culture as it is now or even existing as a human being. Because if you wrote on the X-Files in the 90s on Fox, you're probably insanely wealthy and you've never <laughs> interacted with a human being again since 1999. Um, I'm just worried about that respect of it. Like trying to fix the problems of sex in the city that people have commented on in the present. And I still don't think the show knows um, that Carrie Bradshaw was an anti-hero, as Emily Nussbaum said in her great essay, Difficult Women. It undercuts that a bit mm-hmm. in the finale and tries to give her the perfect happy ever after. So I don't know. I have a lot of feelings, but whatever. So um, that's our show this week. Thanks again to Riz Ahmed for joining us. And um, we will see you next week. Keep It is a Crooked Media production. The show is produced by Caroline Reston and Brian Semmel is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Ira Madison III. I think I've heard of him. Our editor is Bill Lance, and Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thank you to our digital team, Matt DeGroote, Nar Melkonian, and Milo Kim for production support every week. Stay safe. Be blessed. God loves you. Explore the world's hidden wonders on the Atlas Obscura podcast, a village in India where everyone's name is a song, a boiling river in the Amazon, a spacecraft cemetery in the middle of the ocean. Every day, the Atlas Obscura podcast will blow your mind in 15 minutes. You can find it on the SiriusXM app, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to follow the show so you never miss an episode.